Praise the Lord. Let me mention again that we have our healing school at 1 o'clock today right here. And all of you are welcome to come to that. If you came believing God for a healing in your body, we've prayed with you. We've had people down here and that's great. But you know, you need to sit under the Word specifically talking about healing. And then we have students that uh, when we began this healing school, I forget exactly what period of time, but it was at like three, four weeks or something that all they did was teach the students how to receive and how to minister healing. And so at the end of the healing school, we have students up here that will just pray with you and they will minister and flow in the gifts. And we are seeing awesome miracles happen. Matter of fact, Ashley and Carly, come up here real quickly and just share maybe some of the uh, testimonies. Ashley and Carly helped Daniel with the healing school. And uh, these people, you know, these are the ones that are... Hannah's parents, and I told them that they didn't just get a healing, they got the truth about healing, the revelation, and they walk in it, and they see a lot of people healed. So share with them some of the things that are happening at the healing school. Sure, well, you know, healing school is, healing something obviously we're very excited about. It's a big part of our life and our passion, and it's such a privilege for us to work with Daniel in the healing school every Thursday. And every Thursday we stand up, we have a time of, of worship, we start with a half an hour time of worship, and then we have, we have testimonies, we have about an hour's teaching every week specifically on the subject of healing. You know, because it is so vast and so huge and so diverse. You know, people, people come every week and they get ministered to, and we're not in a hurry. We're just going to minister to people until they get what they came for. Amen. Sometimes you need more than just a 30-second, you know, be blessed, be healed, be filled kind of prayer, don't you? You know, people come and they have real concerns and real fears and things that they've been dealing with for maybe for, maybe for years. And we're not in any hurry, but we'll, people leave with exactly what they came for. So if you've come here and you're believing for a miracle, if you need a healing, then come at 1 o'clock and come expecting. Because week after week after week, and we're not making this up, we see miracles every week. Amen. So if for some reason God doesn't show up at one o'clock, it's going to be really weird, all right? <laughs> it really is. You know, we've seen people healed of, of diabetes, of cancer. We've seen cancer tumors pop under people's hands as they've been praying. We've seen people that have been, um, like last week, we, we prayed with a lady that had um, a back injury from a car accident. And then on top of that, she'd had a stroke and it affected a whole side of her brain. She'd, she'd damaged her vertebrae, she'd compressed her spine, she couldn't bend over, she had constant pain, she had um, nervous tremors, tremoring through her body all the time, she was a wreck. And I said to her, how long have you been dealing with this? And she said, six years. Six years too long. Amen. I mean, Amen. one by one, oh, and on top of that, she was kind of half blind in one eye. And one by one, she came with a laundry list, and we just checked off, healed, 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 healed. And at the end, oh, praise God, that's awesome. Amen. That's worth Amen. a round of applause, isn't it? Amen. Amen. You know, and at the end, we said to her, is there anything else? You know, <laughs> because sometimes people come with things and it's like, well, I've got this laundry list of, of issues, but, you know, I don't want to ask God for everything. <laughs> it, well, you're right, you know, it, it could rock heaven. I'm not sure that God's got enough power for that. It's been too long. It's too big of an issue. But seriously, at the end, there was nothing. This woman was brand new. I'm like, man, we could have done this six years ago. 
you know? But we're seeing, seeing people set free week after week after week, and there is nothing too big for the Lord. There is nothing. I mean, if he's paid the price for your cold, he's paid for price for cancer, hasn't he? Amen. Amen. So it's exciting. So, so come at one o'clock and be expecting and, and don't leave until you get what you came for. It's good. Amen. Amen. Well, she said it all. It's good. <laughs> but you know, I'm just real excited because, um, you know, Andrew and um, Gary Luke, the director of the school, um, had the vision for this healing school. Because you know what? It's, we know this, but you, we can't hear it enough. It's God's will for you to be healed and to be prosperous and to be whole. You know what, if you've got kids, you want them kids to, su- to succeed. And sometimes we overcomplicate things. God's our loving father. Whether you had one or not, this is the truth. God's your loving father, and he delights when you succeed. He delights when you prosper. He delights when you're healthy, whole, and full. And that's what healing school is about. Healing school is about you coming and us ministering to you. And basically, the word of God will set you free. And, and the word of God is going to cure whatever ails you. I'm telling you, the love of God and that truth message that God wants you healed. And so often we've heard that's not the case. Sometimes God heals. That's what happened with our daughter. I was, I was a spirit-filled Christian. I believed God could heal my daughter. But I was like, well, sometimes he heals, sometimes he doesn't. I don't know if it's his will or not. You know, maybe I'm not quite praying right. Maybe I'm not quite doing things right. You know, the truth is... God is a loving Father, and He wants you well, more than you want to be well. And that's the truth. So come to Healing School. You'll be really blessed, and uh, we'll get to minister to you, and you, you'll get to hear the Word. Daniel's preaching, and um, Daniel's got an anointing for, for uh, preaching the Word on healing, and uh, you're going to be really blessed. It's going to be great. So come along at 1 o'clock. Thank you. Praise the Lord. How many of you in here have not seen Hannah's story? about their daughter who was healed. Could I see your hand if you have not seen that? I tell you, you are missing an awesome, awesome faith-building thing. So please get that DVD. I tell you what, it'll, it'll light a fire under you. If that doesn't get you going, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood is wet. <laughs> Amen? Also, I need to announce that from 5 to 6 this evening is when we're going to have the tours of this facility over here just across the parking lot. If any of you would like to do that, and you have to meet in the CBC foyer. And then at 6.30 this evening is when the children give their presentation over in our CBC auditorium. And uh, so we encourage you to take advantage of all that. And then we'll be back again at 7 tonight. Okay, so... Because we have the healing school in here, some of you save your seat by putting things on your chair. Uh, You can't do that today. We're going to be having people in here uh, for the healing school, so your things will be moved, confiscated, and destroyed. (laughs) But don't leave your personal items sitting around saving a seat, amen, because praise the Lord. Well, I hope you've been blessed this week. I have really, really, really been encouraged. And it is so neat to hear the testimonies about so many people's lives that are being changed. You know, this is the greatest thing. I just can't imagine anybody that's doing anything any better than what I'm doing. All right, Karen's waving at me. Karen wants to remind you again that if any of you have had your life changed through this ministry, if God has done something for you, please come see Karen And Karen and John are doing interviews over in our other building and just uh, uh, little video clips about your testimony. And we use these in all kinds of ways. So this is Karen Bean. Come see her and they'll set up an interview. 
She's a blessing. I've known Karen and her husband for what? How long was it when we met? 32 years ago, and now she's been working with us for how long? Five years? Five years. Since her husband died, and she came here, and she's working with us. Boy, she's a blessing. Amen. So thank you, and you'll go check her. Praise the Lord. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to continue along the lines of what I've been teaching in the morning about how that God's already done everything, and He placed everything that's already been accomplished on the inside of you. So I've used primarily Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2, the last two mornings, to teach on this. And yesterday I was talking about the balance between grace and faith. That faith is not something you do to get God to move. God doesn't respond to your faith. But true Bible faith is a positive response to God's grace. That is a great statement. That took me 20 years to figure that one out. But that changed my life. Faith doesn't move God. Faith doesn't make God do anything. It doesn't put any pressure on God. God doesn't respond to your faith. But true Bible faith is a positive response to what God has already done. And if you aren't trusting and resting in what God has already done then it's not true Bible faith. Here's another way of saying it is that faith only appropriates what God has already provided by grace. If God hasn't already provided it, you can't get it through faith. Faith does not make God do something new. He's already done it. He's already healed every person. By the stripes of Jesus, they were healed. Did you know when a person dies, they were healed? Jesus provided healing for them. And if they were a believer, they had the raising from the dead power just inches away from whatever it was that killed them. God's already done His part. It's just they didn't reach out and appropriate what God had provided. And those are major, major statements. What I want to do is take these scriptures in Hebrews chapter 4 and illustrate this. And to me, this is just a perfect illustration of what I've been trying to get across. And this really blesses me. And every time I look at creation, I think about these kind of things because this is what Hebrews chapter 4 is talking about. The context of this is the book of Hebrews is showing that Jesus is the superior way of God revealing Himself to us. It trumps everything. It trumps the Old Testament way. It trumps the message that came through angels. God has spoken unto us through Jesus. And he begins to show that it was confirmed in chapter 2 by the apostles through signs and wonders and miracles. And then in chapter 3, it compares Jesus to Moses and says that Jesus is the one that created the house. He has more honor than the person who builds it. I mean, than the house itself. He has, the person who built it has more honor. And Jesus is a superior way. And he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, but they couldn't enter into the promised land because of their unbelief. So those are the things that have been said in the first three chapters. And then look at this in chapter 4. Here's an application to us in our covenant today. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest. Any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. 
In other words, just like the Israelites, they experienced God's deliverance from Egypt, but they didn't enter into the promised land. They died in the wilderness. That was never God's will for them. But it happened because of their unbelief. God, by grace, had provided for them a promised land flowing with milk and honey, houses that they didn't have to build, and they were built by giants. So these were big houses, spacious houses. They already had the fields plowed and the rocks out of it, and the crops were already sown. And God had provided this abundance for them and they never experienced God's best because they would not cooperate. What a graphic illustration of how God by grace provides things, but there are things you have to do. But it's not your doing that makes God do it. No, God's already got it provided. You just have to trust Him and cooperate and do what He asks you to do. And this says that the word preached unto them did not profit them because it wasn't mixed with faith. This is the power of God right here. Every promise in here has enough power in it to do whatever it is that you need. But this doesn't do one thing until you mix it with faith. It's like there's a spiritual chemical reaction that takes place when you take the truth of God's word and put faith in it. This doesn't do one thing until it's mixed with faith. There's people that take the Bible and they hold it under their arm and they put it in a position and make a little shrine out of it and they love it and they talk about it, but they never mix it with faith and it doesn't do one thing for them. You can lay this Bible on the top of your head until your head's flat on top and it's never going to get you healed. It doesn't do a thing unless you mix it with faith. You've got to believe this. And that's what this is saying. And then look at this in verse 3. For we which have believed, who have received the grace of God, the promises of God, and mix it with faith, we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place on the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all of his works. That's talking about Genesis chapter 2. After the creation, God rested from his creation. And then in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. And anyway, the King James here is really wordy, and I've never found another translation that makes it much better. Uh, I struggled with this for years, but let me just kind of condense this and try and say what this is saying, that when you believe God, God has a place that these scriptures are calling a rest. And I mentioned this briefly yesterday morning, that real faith isn't forcing God to do something and grabbing hold of the horns of the altar and making God come out. But real faith is when you just are resting in the Lord and you know God's done it and you're at peace. There is a rest. And this is talking about a mature place of strength. I had a situation with my son. I, I got a lot to say, so I'm going to say this real quick. This is the short version. But he had a sickness that we dealt with for years. Every day on the same year, this thing came back for like 10 years or something. And it was demonic. There's no physical thing that makes something come back in exactly the same day every year for 10 years. But we dealt with this, and I would fast and pray and rebuke and bind and uh, it was this knot behind his ear up on his head. And anyway, the last time that that came up, 
We saw that coming and normally I would have started fighting and doing these things. And I just looked at that and I said, stupid devil, when is he going to quit? And I didn't do any of my stuff. I just said, man, I don't believe that. And I rejected it and that was it. Didn't do anything. I just rested in the Lord. And you know, that's when that stopped. And we saw deliverance. Sometimes the strongest thing of faith that you can do, like Smith Wigglesworth one time was going to bed, and this is back when he used a candle, you know, and he was going to bed and he saw something move at the end of his bed and he held up the candle and looked and there was a demon standing at the end of the bed. What would you have done? Well, most of us, oh, start praying in tongues, rebuking, binding, fight, call somebody on the phone. Smith says, oh, it's just you, blew the candle out, went to bed. Another time, he saw the devil moving some furniture. He heard it and looked, and there was a demon scooting furniture around in his house. What would you do if you saw that? Smith said, you put that back where it belongs. He commanded him to put it back, and he just kept going. You know, sometimes that's a really position of strength. When this talks about that there is a rest, for a long time I didn't understand this, because when I thought of rest, I thought like laying in a hammock and taking a nap. And yet, right down here, I believe it's in that verse 9, it says, um, well, it's verse 9, there remaineth the rest of the people of God. And then verse 11, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. And this was confusing to me. I thought, now wait, if this is describing a rest where you just lay back and, man, everything works and there's no effort involved, how do you labor to rest? That's like telling somebody to work at going to sleep. You know, it's... It, it confused me for a while, but what helped me was when I started looking at this rest, when it, it says, it compares this to a Sabbath rest. And when God rested from creating the universe, what does that mean? Does that mean that He was worn out? That if He created one more star, one more moon, He'd just pass out. He was as tired, He had to take a rest. No, the scripture says in um, Isaiah chapter 40 that he doesn't get weary, he doesn't sleep, he, gets, he doesn't get faint. God wasn't wore out. He didn't quit and rest on the seventh day because he was pooped. He rested because it was complete. It's like a lawyer when he says, I rest my case. That doesn't mean he's worn out and I can't do anything else. It means he's made all of the points that there are to make. He's presented things as well as he can. And so I rest. The defense rests. Or like an artist, he paints a picture and he's done, he's done it, it's a masterpiece. And if he puts one more brush stroke in there, he's going to destroy the whole thing. So he rests from his painting. Not because his arm is heavy holding that paintbrush. But he rests because it's complete. And this is what God did at creation. When he created the heavens and the earth, I wish I had time to go through the whole thing, but you could spend days on this. But I encourage you to go back and just study creation as it's described in Genesis chapter 1. It is very specific how the Lord did everything. You know, we read these things and most people just pass over this, but it's very neat the way that he said it. He, he didn't just say, let there be trees, let there be grass. Because, it, see, if that's the way that he would have done creation, then when those trees and that grass died, he would have had to have recreated new trees and new grass. 
But he said, let the earth bring forth grass whose seed is in itself. Let the tree bring forth, let the earth bring forth trees whose fruit is in itself, whose seed is there. And the way that he spoke it, God created everything by his words. He didn't just create the original creation, but he created the creation so perfectly that it procreates. It keeps on going. God has never created another tree, another blade of grass. He has never created more oxygen on this planet than he did when he first created it. There was only two people on this earth. And yet he created enough oxygen for now. We have about 6.2 billion people on this earth. And he created enough oxygen for them. And he created these trees that uh, take and cleanse the, ox, uh, the atmosphere and do all of this. I've heard a scientific thing that there is one stand of trees in Iceland alone that could uh, cleanse the entire uh, atmosphere of the earth and keep you know, enough oxygen going for all of the people on this planet. People are trying to tell you that it's a fragile planet and we're global warming and it's falling apart and it's all alive. God's anticipated everything that will ever happen on this planet. And God created enough of everything. There's no shortage of anything. I'm not sure that there's a shortage of fossil fuels. They just found a new uh, field of oil that they said nearly dwarfs all of the supplies that were known. And so, you know, there may be more, but whether it's fossil fuels or, you know, I actually heard a thing about somebody that made a car that runs off of water. They've got that technology. There is no shortage of anything. This whole thing that, you know, it's fragile. God anticipated everything that's ever going to happen on this planet. There's enough water. There's enough oxygen. There's enough of everything. And God has never recreated anything in, since the beginning. He created this world and made it perfect. It was so complete that he rested because it was finished. It was done. To do anything else would have ruined the perfection that we have in creation. And the way that he created man is very important too because he didn't create man on the first day of creation. According to the scripture, it says that we are the crowning jewel of creation. We are just a little bit lower than God. Psalms chapter 82, I believe it is. And actually in the uh, Hebrew, that's lower than Elohim, God. We are actually in God's class. We are created in His image. We are superior to all of the animals, all of the trees. If you are one of those tree huggers, I'm sorry to bust your bubble, but one person is worth more than all of the snail darters in the world. Amen? We're more, more than all the spotted owls in the world. Now, if you're a good steward of what God is doing, you have a desire to keep things right. I'm not saying that we go out and just trash stuff. But I'm saying that men are the, uh, the number one thing. He created all of this for us to enjoy. And so we are the real focus of creation, and yet He didn't create us until last. Why didn't He create us first? If he would have created mankind first, did you know that you would have had to tread water for three days before there was ground to stand on? There wasn't light at first. There was no heat on the earth. You would have frozen to death. You'd have had to tread water. And then when God commanded the uh, land to appear, 
And all of a sudden these volcanoes and things started popping up and all of this happened. Man, it would have been unbelievable. It would have been dangerous. We couldn't have lived in that environment. Then when he said, let there be trees, all of a sudden a huge forest come up and all these things. If we'd have been standing there, you could have been killed by all of this. You know, we were created very last. Why? Because God had to create the atmosphere. He had to create the warmth. He had to create the food for us to eat. You know, people wonder about how did creation happen. I don't uh, claim to understand everything, but I can guarantee you this. Mankind did not have to plant trees and wait seven years for them to produce fruit. They'd have starved to death. I can guarantee you that the fruit trees were created full grown and the fruit was completely uh, fully developed. He didn't have to wait months for the fruit to develop. When Adam and Eve were created, instantly everything they needed for life. All of the oxygen, the right atmosphere, the right temperature, the right food. Everything was done. God created us last. On the sixth day, he created the animals. And then at the end of the sixth day, he created us. And so this means that we were the very last thing in God's creation. He created Adam and Eve. And then, uh, if you know anything about the Jewish day, it says in Genesis chapter 1 that the evening and the morning were the first day, the second day. The Jews reckoned time from sunset on like uh, the evening, and that's the beginning of the next day, and it goes until sunset. So when it says that God created Adam and Eve, it was on the sixth day. It was probably what we would have called the afternoon of the sixth day, and then the seventh day began at sundown, and immediately after the creation of Adam and Eve, they entered into his rest. He rested because everything that they needed was already done for them. They didn't have to pray and say, but God, I'm hungry. And he said, oh, I forgot. Uh, here's a tree. Here's some fruit. But God, what do I breathe? Oh, I forgot about that. I'll give you air and oxygen if you'll ask me. And what about this? And what about the temperature and all of these things? God anticipated every need that mankind would ever had, he created it and then created Adam and Eve and they immediately entered into his rest. That is a picture of what I've been talking about, that God by grace has anticipated every spiritual, every earthly, physical, natural, emotional need, anything that we ever need, God has already accomplished all of that through Jesus. And just as he has never created another animal, he has never created another tree, he's never created another blade of grass, he's never had to do anything else. He created all of this and then he rested from his labors. Likewise, when he sent Jesus, he anticipated everything that you could ever need. Jesus has already taken care of you emotionally. You don't need God to touch you and to do things. He's anticipated everything. He's already supplied it. And when you got born again, everything that you need is in you. The Bible says, Galatians 5.22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. That's telling you what's in your spirit. In your spirit, you've already got love, joy, and peace. I have people come to me all the time and I'm depressed. Would you please pray that I could just have the joy of the Lord? Would you please ask the Lord? And I say, no. 
Because you know what? They're denying that he's already given you love, joy, and peace. The scripture says you've got it in your spirit. And they say, oh no, I don't have it. And it says, well, the Bible says you do. Oh no, I don't have it. I'm depressed. All you're doing is searching your emotions, your physical realm. And in your mind and in your emotions, you don't feel joy. But your spirit is always basking in the love of God and enjoying the presence of God. The problem is that we aren't in the spirit. We're in the flesh. And if we don't feel it, then we think that God hasn't done it. The truth is God has already given you everything. And so instead of trying to use your faith to get God to bless you, you should be using your faith to say, Father, thank you that your word says, I've got love, joy, peace. I've got these things. I'm resting in this. I've got it. And I refuse to let my heart be troubled. I'm not going to go by my emotions. I'm not going to go by what this person says about me. I'm not going to go by the doctor's report, the banker's report. I'm going to rest on what your word says. And you just learn to rest and let what you have in the spirit dominate and control you. Man, that's powerful. That is really powerful. And this is the reason that this is talking about that there is a relationship where you just rest in the Lord. You trust that He's already done it. And like it says down here in verse 11, you have to labor to rest. This takes a lot of effort. You do need to study the Word. And people see that if you study the Word and if you know the Word, that boy, things work better for you. And so they think that what the deal is, if I'll spend two hours a day studying the Word, then God is going to bless me. God will respond to my Bible study. And God will grant me the thing that I need. That's not it at all. But you, if you'll spend a couple of hours a day or whatever time a day in the Word, this changes your perception. You begin to see what God's Word says. The Word of God will change your soul, convert your souls, what it says in Psalms chapter 19. It enlightens your eyes. It makes your heart rejoice and all of these things. You get into the Word, it doesn't make God do anything, but the Word is how faith comes and it enables you to reach out and appropriate what God has already done. But if you get to thinking that God is keeping track of your Bible readings and if you will do five hours in the Word, you can cash it in for one answered prayer, then you are in the flesh and you are operating under the law. And that's the very thing that stops the power of God from operating because you are trusting your performance instead of what God has done. But there's things we need to do. It takes a lot of labor. If you sit and watch television all day long, I can guarantee you, you are not going to see God's best come in your life. But is that because God is against you watching television and if you watch television, He's not going to answer your prayer because you aren't living holy? No, God feels exactly the same about you. He's provided all of these things and they're all available to you, but the difference is you will be made carnal by just sitting and plugging into our society. We live in a toxic society. We live in an ungodly culture. America is a very ungodly place. Relative to some other places, I think it's one of the best places on the face of the earth. And I praise God for what we've got. But I can guarantee you it is not a Christian culture. It may have been started as a Christian culture, but there, it is an ungodly culture. We are full of unbelief. And the stuff that you watch on television is full of unbelief. And even if you could find something decent to watch on television, the commercials would kill you. It's just full of unbelief. And if that's what you are watching, 
Garbage in, garbage out. So if you're just sitting there watching television all day, you're going to be hindered in your spiritual growth. But is that because God is upset and He's not going to answer your prayer because you hadn't been living holy? God doesn't respond to you. You should be responding to Him. And the sad fact is you just aren't responding to Him. You're, you, all you're doing is listening to the stuff of this world. So all you can do is respond to the unbelief and the fear and the anger and the worry and the frustration that's in the world. It doesn't have anything to do with God's love for you, but you just make your heart harden towards God. If you seek God with your old heart and go to church and, and study the Word and pray and do all of these things, it doesn't make God love you more, but it'll make you love God more. It doesn't make God's heart sensitive to you, but it'll make your heart sensitive to God. So yes, there are things we have to do. We have to labor. We do need to live a holy life. But what's wrong is when people say, you've got to be holy in order for God to love you and to bless you and to accept you and move. That is wrong. That's contrary to what the Word says. But you do need to live a holy life to separate yourself from all of the lies and the deception and the pollution and the corruption that is in the world. Thank you for that one head nod. That's profound. There's some people sitting here saying, well, what's the difference? One way or the other, you've got to start living holy. Huge difference. Huge difference. Because if you think God is demanding it of you, then when you fail, and you will fail, you won't do it properly, then you're going to uh, think that God is upset with you and you come under this guilt and condemnation that Arthur was preaching against because you were looking on the flesh. But if you do it as just a discipline, that, Father, I know you love me, and I don't have to do these things to get you to love me or anything else. But, man, I do not want to let my heart become hardened to you. I don't want to have Satan's attitude in my life. I know that you love me regardless of whether I, I'm mature or immature, whether I'm doing the right thing or not. But, man, I want to experience all of your goodness, and I don't want to give Satan an inroad into my life to hinder me and to slow me down. So you do it that way, then when you fail... You just say, well, sorry, Father, and you get right back on because you know that He loves you and you don't feel like he, you've ever lost your relationship with Him. There's a huge difference between those two. Huge difference. And then, after all these things I've said, when the Lord instituted the Sabbath and the observance of the Sabbath, you know what it was all about? It was to picture exactly what I've been talking about. Look at this passage over in Colossians chapter 2. Again, if you were to read the context of this, it's all talking about the law being taken away and nailed to the cross of Jesus. These are powerful things and making a show of the devil openly. And then in verse 16, he says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. This lists five things in verse 16, and it says they're all shadows of something that is now a reality in the New Testament. And it's amazing, again, how people don't use any discernment when they read the Bible. And so they take something in the Old Testament that it wasn't wrong, it was in the Word of God, it was a command from God, but this very clearly says it was a shadow, a picture of something to come. Now we don't 
have the shadow, we've got the reality. Quit worshiping the shadow and observing the shadow. Let's go with the reality that we have. You know, again, imagine that this is a corner of a building right here and you're standing over there and I'm standing here and we've got this huge building here and because of that, you can't see me. But if you couldn't see me, but if there was a light behind me and you could see my shadow down here, then that shadow would be really important to give you information. It would tell you whether I'm moving towards you or whether I'm moving away from you, whether I'm standing still, whether I'm jumping up and down, whether I've got a bat in my hand that when you come around the corner, I'm going to hit you. or You could tell a lot by looking at my shadow if you can't see me. But if I walk around the corner of the building and now I'm, I'm face to face with you, what would you think of a person that fell down and hugged my shadow or tried to shake hands with my shadow and said, oh, I'm so glad to see you. I'm glad that you're finally here. We would think, what is wrong with you? My shadow only has benefit if you can't see me. But once you can see me, why would you talk to my shadow? That is just so simple. And all of the Old Testament was a shadow of something that is now a New Testament reality. And it lists specifically five things here in the 16th verse. Look at this. It says, don't let any man judge you in meat. There were certain laws about what foods you could eat. You couldn't eat any shellfish. No such thing as oysters, shrimp, any of this stuff. You couldn't eat uh, pig, swine. Those things were forbidden. There were certain other birds of prey. And did you know today, there is a vast number of Christians who are on these health food kicks and they write these books about going back to Jerusalem diet and this diet and they try and base it on all of these dietary laws of the Old Testament. And you know, there may have been a, a double benefit to some of the things that God commanded. And so I'm not saying that there couldn't be any benefit to that. But the only place in Scripture that the dietary laws are explained why God told you to eat them is right here. And also in 1 Timothy chapter 4 it talks about them. And it says they were a shadow of something to come. In the New Testament it says whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God. In other words, the Lord didn't want us to just have a spiritual side and then in the physical realm, you just pig out, you destroy your body, you don't do things in moderation. He basically just was saying that you need to glorify God in your spiritual life, in your emotional life, in your physical life, in everything. And so he gave dietary laws. And they were shadows of in the New Testament, everything we're doing, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God is what the scripture says. They were not given for health reasons. And I know there's a lot of people that will disagree with that, but this says they were shadows of things. Keep your finger here. I'm coming back, but look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. It says now in verse 1, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with iron. So then it begins to list what are some of the doctrines of devils that come in latter times. Here they are. Forbidding to marry. That's talking about people that say if you're a priest, you can't marry, you've got to be celibate. That is a doctrine of the devil. Is that too subtle? Anybody miss this? 
I'm not mad at anybody who preaches that, but it's a doctrine of the devil. And there's a reason why homosexuality is rampant in the Catholic Church, because they are denying the natural urges that God created man to have. And it is a doctrine of the devil to tell a person that you can't marry. I'm preaching better than you're listening. And look at the next one. It says, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Nothing is to be refused. Nothing. In the Greek, that means nothing. It means we can eat shrimp and oysters and you can eat pork. I think my favorite food is bacon. I love bacon. Amen. And if anybody's telling you something different, it's a doctrine of the devil. And yet, did you know on Christian radio and television, it's not unusual to have nearly 50% of the programming being about nutritional stuff and trying to tell you that you've got to go back to these dietary laws. And the scripture says that's a doctrine of the devil. It's wrong. Now, there's a balance. I believe that we should try and eat healthy. But you know what? Healthy changes depending on what whim people have. I remember when they used to preach that fat was bad and they got into no fat foods and I, they, people went on kicks. And did you know that there were people that started having mental problems because they've now found out that you have to have a certain amount of fat in your diet to make your brain work. That's the reason I'm so sharp. <laughs> My lightning fast mind is well greased. They've got on the kick about drinking water, which I believe you should drink water. And if you're in Colorado, you need more water because you dehydrate faster. We have such a dry climate. There's a balance to this. But did you know that there's people that have died because they drank so much water? You can drink too much water and it'll kill you. There's a balance to everything. The Bible teaches moderation, not extreme. And people are extreme today. Going back, they don't understand why these things were given. They were shadows of things to come. And there's people that miss that message. So back to Colossians chapter 2. Most Christians, most of you in here, believe that you don't have to adhere to all of those dietary laws because you probably had bacon today. Or you have pork. Or you eat shrimp. Or whatever. And most of well, I'm not bound by those laws. I agree 100%. Then look at the next thing. It says, or in drink. Don't let anybody judge you about your drink. Did you know that there were certain dietary laws concerning what you could drink and what you couldn't drink? Most of you don't even know what those are, so you must not feel bound to those. But there were dietary laws concerning your drink in the Old Testament. Then it says, or in respect of a holy day. In other words, there was the Passover, there was the Feast of Tabernacle, there was all of these things. Most of you don't observe those things. And rightfully so, because that wasn't a covenant for the New Testament church. You aren't under those. Those were pictures. The Passover is fulfilled in the Lord's Supper. And it says, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. And if you are a born-again Christian, 
loving God, you are living a Passover every day. And the death angel and curses are passing over you because of the blood that was applied to your life. And you are living this. And you don't have to go through the symbolism because you got the reality. You don't have to observe certain holy days. The next thing it says, or of the new moon. Did you know that every new moon you had to offer a sacrifice to God? How many of you offered a sacrifice to God last new moon? How many know when the new moon was? Well, isn't this amazing? Here's five things listed, four of them. All of us basically are in agreement that these were just Old Testament pictures and shadows and now we have a reality and we don't have to observe it. But then look at the fifth thing and here it says, or of the Sabbath days. Did you know we still have large segments of the body of Christ that are bound to the observance of the Sabbath day and preach it? Some preach it that if you violate the Sabbath day, and there are scriptures to back this up. If you violate the Sabbath day, you're supposed to be killed that you cannot have relationship with God. This is why God's judgment is coming on you. Isaiah chapter 58. And there's just a lot of scriptures talking about the Sabbath day. And we have, like the Seventh Day Adventist, numbers of different denominations that are built around the Sabbath day. And even the Baptist church that I was in, it wasn't as strict as some, but we wouldn't, you could not mow our lawn on, the, on Sunday because that was the Sabbath. We didn't wash dishes on Sunday. We would wait until Monday to do it. We didn't clean the house. Sunday was the day that we went to church and then we sat around and watched television. <laughs> so it was a semi-deal. But we wouldn't mow the lawn. I wouldn't ever go to a store that was open on Sunday. And even if it was Wednesday or Friday, if I found out that they were open on Sunday, I wouldn't go to them because... They were breaking the Sabbath. And what's funny about that is, Sunday isn't the Sabbath. The Sabbath is sundown Friday night until sundown Saturday night. And it's amazing that even people who say that they're observing the Sabbath don't observe it on the Sabbath. You know why? I don't know this for sure, but I have read some other people who believe this same thing. I guess it could be debated. But the reason I believe that the church started meeting on Sunday, the first day of the week, is because that's the day that Jesus rose. They understood we had a new covenant and it was a deliberate break from the laws of the Old Testament. And they met together on Sunday specifically so that it would not be construed as the Sabbath. And yet there's people today that feel like somehow or another we've got to keep this Sabbath day. The Sabbath was a picture. What was it a picture of? God rested on the seventh day. And man entered into this relationship where God had already provided everything and all man had to do, God didn't put the food in your mouth and intravenously make you digest it. He provided, you just had to reach out and appropriate it. Say thank you. And that's the way that it was. So when he instituted the Sabbath day, you know what it was all about? Here was this, you got to put yourself back into this time and recognize that this is back when the curse was still ruling the earth and men were working seven days a week trying to scratch out a living. They couldn't go to the grocery store and buy their food and stuff. They were agricultural people. They were digging in the ground and removing the rocks and it took everything they had. They worked seven days a week 
10, 15 hours a day. They were struggling. Here comes God's people. And he says, take one day out of seven off. You know, in the natural mind, the people who think, I can't prosper. I'm not going to prosper as much as the people that work seven days a week. But God said, I'll bless you if you'll do it. And sure enough, with the Jews, they would take one day out of seven off and just worship God to say that, Father, you're my source. I'm digging in the ground. I'm planting seeds. But it's not just me that's doing this. You are blessing the work of my hand. You are making this happen. And to prove it, they took one out of seven days off and they were more prosperous than all of the nations around them that worked seven days a week. And just in case anybody missed that picture, you can read about this in the 25th chapter of the book of Leviticus. And in the 25th chapter, they had to take one year out of every seven off. They couldn't plant any crops and they couldn't reap anything that grew of itself. They had to leave that for the poor of the land or for the beast of the field. They were forbidden to reap or do any work for an entire year. Now, how do you wrap your brain around that? How are you ever going to prosper if you take one out of seven years off? In Leviticus chapter 25, I'd have to look up the exact verse. It's around verse 20 something. It says, if the people say, how will we eat? During this seventh year, he says, I will bless you in the sixth year so that you'll receive three times a normal crop that will take you through the sixth year, through the seventh year, and through the eighth year as you begin to start planting your crops again. And just like clockwork, God would supernaturally bless them. You know what he was doing with the Sabbath? It was a picture that you're working, but it's not your work that is making you prosper. It's your relationship with God. God is your source. And if you will just trust me and rest in me and make me your source, I'll cause you to prosper more doing less than the people who are working their fingers to the bone. And that's what the Sabbath was a picture of. And now we have a Sabbath rest that is described in Hebrews chapter 4 where we should be resting in the Lord. And instead of getting worried and trying to get God to move, and, oh, God, please do this for me, and please do that, we need to reach a place to where we rest in the finished work of the cross of Christ that He's already done, and we just rest in that. And it takes effort to rest, but that is what the Sabbath was a picture of. And today, if you are resting in Jesus... And trusting Him and believing that regardless of what the report is, God, you've already supplied my need and I just believe and I receive. If you are resting in Him like that, you are keeping the Sabbath. That was, that's what it was a picture of. That's what it was all about. And you are the Sabbath keeper. And the person who is keeping a certain day and not doing certain things is the Sabbath breaker. They're down there hugging the shadow. They are missing the whole point of everything. The people who are so legalistic about the Sabbath are the Sabbath breakers. They're missing the true heart and intent of what it was all about. And our religious system today is doing this same thing with just multitudes of things. They're adhering to all of the Sabbath laws. They're doing this. They're strict and ritualistic about all of this stuff and missing the heart of what everything in the Old Covenant was making a picture of. It's all fulfilled in Christ. And we can just rest in Christ and receive all of these things.
Brothers and sisters, there's very few Christians. Again, I think that you guys are awesome. You're the ones that took your vacation and effort to come here. I think you're wonderful. But there's probably very few Christians in this room who really rest in the Lord and are honoring Him and keeping the New Testament Sabbath. And there may be some of you that are very strict about doing certain things and you always go to church on Sunday or whatever your standard is that you adhere to and yet you're missing the rest in the Lord. Every time something bad happens, you think it's something brand new that's come between you and God and so you've got to start petitioning Him and call the prayer chain to get it all fixed when the truth is it's already been fixed and all you've got to do is rest in Him. There's a, there's a rest that remains for the people of God. And it says, He that has entered into His rest has ceased from His own labors as God did from His. If you are still thinking that you have to perform to get God to move in your life, to love you, to be pleased with you, to answer your prayers, you haven't ceased from your own labors. You are thinking that God is moving in your life because of your great goodness and holiness and you, aren't, you haven't entered into His rest. He that's entered into His rest has ceased from His own labors. Now again, you need to understand this doesn't mean you don't do anything. It's like in this ministry. We're doing a lot of things. We're doing a lot of things. Sometimes I feel like I, I'm trying to juggle a hundred things and keep them all going at the same time. I'm doing a lot. I've got meetings, four hours worth of meetings this afternoon, four hours of meetings tomorrow. I'm doing more than probably what I should be doing. But you know what? I'm not trusting in my work and in my great effort and just doing it by myself. God is blessing me far beyond what I'm doing. I'm resting in the Lord. I'm not doing it perfectly. I'm improving. But you know what? I am resting in the Lord and God is blessing me. And God has brought me other people. And, and there's just a blessing. It's like my mother. I said this, I think, last night. She looked at me and she says, you aren't smart enough to do all of this. It is absolutely true. This isn't because I'm the sharpest knife in the drawer. It's because I really am responding to the Lord and obeying. And God is just blessing me and things are happening and God's bringing people to me and awesome things are happening. It defies logic. And yet we're blessed. You know, we give our materials away. We encourage people to give and say it's for a donation. We tell you what we think it's worth, but we say we'll give it to you whether you send... Any money or not. Did you know that nearly this last year, 59% of every person who contacted me didn't send a penny and we sent them what they asked for. We gave away, we've now given away, I don't know, 11, 12 million pieces of material. Books, tapes, CDs, videos. How do you do that? I have no clue. Except it's just what God put on my heart and I'm resting in Him and my partners enabled me to do that. And we reach people that other ministries don't reach because they can't buy the materials and so we make things available. And you know what? I'm just resting in Him. This is like taking the sixth year off. How are you going to make it if you do that? Because I'm trusting God and that's what God put in my heart and it works. It works. There is a rest that a lot of Christians haven't entered into. And you can pretty much tell whether you're there by how anxious you are, 
whether you worry about stuff and all these kind of things. You need to cast all of your care over on the Lord knowing He cares for you. Understand that God's not waiting on you to be perfect. You don't have to be a perfect person. All of these people that you saw up here, there's not a one of them that's perfect. I could probably point to every person who came up here and tell you something about them that I know that would make you know that they aren't perfect. And they could point back at me and show you a number of things about me that aren't perfect. God's never had anybody qualified working for Him yet. But you know what? God doesn't move in our life because we're perfect. It's just about whether can you trust Him, can you rest in Him. And if you can do that, I guarantee you, there is a relationship available that most Christians aren't experienced, and they're worn out, they're burned out, they're fearful, they're struggling. I see people come to my meetings just like a person that's run from meeting to meeting, their tongue's hanging out, they're exhausted, like, oh, is the blessing here? Instead of just resting in God and receiving things. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, there's so much more that we have not entered into because we are Trusting in ourselves, focused on the flesh instead of resting in what Christ has already done for us. And to me, this illustrates this grace and faith really well. And uh, praise God, hopefully that will be a blessing to you. You ought to look out at creation and think about that man. Take a deep breath and say, God knew this. Thousands of years ago when He created the earth, He provided this air for me to breathe. He knew I was going to be here and he's, I've got all of the oxygen I need. I've got all, I've got, I'm the perfect distance from the sun. The temperature is just right. This global warming crock is a, anyway, I'm not going to go there, but we're the right distance. Everything is just wonderful. Praise God that he just anticipated everything. The temperature is great. The food's here. God meant every need. Amen. Just enjoy it. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Well, you need to go pick up your kids. I'm not doing very good on helping you with that. But uh, go pick up your kids. If there's anybody here, I'd like to ask our prayer ministers to come down front. And if there's anybody here that doesn't know Jesus, this would be a great time just to respond to what He's already provided, salvation. If you are born again but don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this would be a great time to come and receive that. If you need healing... Come down here and let someone agree with you. These people are here for you any way we can help you. So please come forward. The rest of you remember healing schools at 1 o'clock. The tours of our building are at 5 o'clock. The children's uh, program is at 6.30 this evening. And then we'll be back here at 7 o'clock. So God bless you. You're dismissed. We'll see you tonight.